authority of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. This evening, in the passage we find in Mark's Gospel, the 8th chapter, starting our reading in verse 14, and we'll read through to verse 21. Mark chapter 8, from verse 14 to verse 21. We hear now God's word. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Amen. Let's pray. Ever-blessed and faithful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would remember as you summon your disciples to remember, and that we would not merely hear about our Lord Jesus Christ, Grant by your grace that we would hear him as he speaks to his church gathered here these very words on this very night. And we ask this in his name. Amen. In Mark chapter 8, our Lord, perhaps surprisingly, makes much of something we think very little of. In fact, by very definition, it is little compared to something great. Leftovers. They are those bits of food that are considered the excess over, above, and beyond what we think of as the main thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I love leftovers. And I love the feasts in which I know I can expect that there will be leftovers. I look forward to the days to come knowing I'm going to get more and more of the good thing I enjoy in that feast. I enjoy leftovers. I also have um, particularly strong, perhaps unnatural interest in how the scriptures elucidate, illuminate, clarify, unpack the many different ways we are related to how God provides for us in things like food and drink and in other ordinary goods. 
And what the scriptures have to say about bread in particular is nothing short of absolutely fascinating. And in fact, has a lot to do with what Jesus is telling his disciples here, they should have understood. They should have understood. Now, we want to remember that the whole notion of leftovers, and there are many terms we use for this uh, gift, of course, but let's call them leftovers for tonight. Now, we want to remember that the, the phenomenon of leftovers is something far from strange to these disciples. In fact, it was far from strange to traditional cultures all the way up until about at least the Great Depression in our country, uh, which was a shift sealed apparently with the Second World War, where we started thinking far differently about our relationship to food and its quantities. Traditionally, leftovers were something you planned on having. You always cooked for more than you thought you would actually need. And the reasons for that have often been uh, given in various ways. The probable origin story is that this is rooted in a hospitality mindset, where you want to be prepared in case someone comes over unexpectedly and will need a place at your table. The last thing you want to do is have someone visit you and you have nothing to give them. And so you would make sure you have at least a little more than you absolutely need. Well, since you weren't graced with an unexpected visitor at every meal, ordinarily you would have a bit left over, and then the question was how to make use of it in the hours and in the days to come. But when, in the early 20th century, we started thinking very carefully about our quantities of food for very good reasons, the need to ration and the need to be very careful about what we secure and how we use it and when we can use it, the, the way of thinking about food started to shift. But the disciples, of course, don't belong to our 20th century world at all. They belong to this culture in which, of course, you would have some food left over. But Jesus is not scolding them for forgetting that there were leftovers. You'll notice he has something very specific in mind that he thinks they should have understood. Having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? Don't you remember? And this is what he wants them to have remembered. When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And when I did the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up then? He's not concerned that they remember that there were Leftovers. Still less is he concerned that they might have forgotten that he did multiply the bread in the first place. In fact, in Mark's gospel, two different times, and Jesus makes much of the fact that there are two different times, or 5,004, when he multiplies the bread. But he's not concerned simply that they remember that he has done this. Do you notice the special interest Jesus has in how many baskets of leftovers there were? Now, what is that about? If the lesson itself is not that Jesus is God and can perform wonderful miracles like this, although this is part of the picture here, and if it is not the fact that there were leftovers, what would be the special lesson the disciples were supposed to understand? So much so they're scolded for not getting it in the numbers of the baskets of leftovers. What is the meaning of the 12 and the 7 baskets left over in particular? 
when Christ fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000 in the Gospels. The evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they do often leave certain details out in their stories in order to emphasize other things they are very concerned to be clear about. But in this case, all the Gospel writers are very careful to specify the numbers of the leftovers in these episodes. Why? I don't know about you, but the first time I noticed that the numbers were a big deal in Mark 8, I felt this rush of anxiety in my chest. Since I don't immediately get it, I must come under this condemnation that Jesus gives his disciples. What's wrong with you, he's saying? Do you not have eyes to see, ears to hear? I'm reading this and I'm thinking, yeah, yep, I have, I have the uh, eyes that don't see, the ears that don't hear. But of course, it is Mark's interest and our Lord's himself that we be led from not getting it to getting it, from not hearing, seeing, and understanding to understanding. Jesus himself asks them very plainly, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets did you take up? Twelve, they reply. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets did you take up? Seven. This is something we are to understand. Clearly, the Lord expects his disciples, and by extension, you and me, to reach a thoroughgoingly biblical conclusion about these numbers. Well, there are at least two sides to Jesus' lesson of the leftovers, we might call it, here in Mark 8. Uh, it would certainly be tempting to spend week upon week unpacking the features of this remarkable story, but we can also keep things very simple this evening and just appreciate these two sides as a lesson in many ways of Christianity 101 and a lesson we all need to learn over and over again and not forget. One, one side of the lesson, in fact, arguably the, uh, the most readily apparent to us, is this very simple but rich and beautiful truth that Jesus' miracles, particularly in view of those leftovers, makes clear to us. And that is that God expects us Indeed, he calls us to benefit in an ongoing way from the things that he does for us in a given time. The blessings of the Lord's day are not for the Lord's day alone. The things that he has done for you, which you are to remember he has done, are not to benefit you only when he has done them but are in their own way to, as it were, cascade with effect for moments, perhaps years to come. Remembering his mercy known at a particular time in a particular way means enjoying the benefits of that mercy well beyond the occasion when you are most in need of it. It means that in later times of need, our recalling the Lord's blessing of us at a certain time is one way in which he blesses us now. 
One way in which he guards our anxious hearts, secures our confidence in him, eases us in our restlessness. What he gave to the crowd in a stupendously marvelous miracle of provision, the disciples, perhaps seven of them in one occasion, we'll talk about that, and then 12 of them on another were to take baskets away with them as concrete, breaded reminders of what Jesus had done and which would feed them beyond that miracle itself. Would feed them later that day or the next day or the day after that for as long as the bread would keep. They would have these reminders. You remember that thing Jesus did yesterday? I'm remembering it now as I eat some of the leftovers of that remarkable provision. Friends, we are forgetful people, aren't we? Far more vulnerable to forgetting than we might care to admit. The Lord might do something absolutely remarkable for us, stupendously wonderful for us, an act of great deliverance, and of course many, many other things as well that are no less marvelous because they are the works of his hands. He might provide for us day in, day out with a steady job. He might give us faithful family members and children who honor the Lord. He might give us friends who are concerned about us, success in this or that endeavor, relative health. He might give us all these things and we very, very quickly forget them when the nature of God's generosity is such that it is designed to overflow beyond its boundaries in ongoing benefits to us. Not by Jesus performing the miracle over and over and over and over again, but in a real way our continuing to benefit from what he did for us close in the rearview mirror. At least one side of Jesus' message is that these disciples, who are rather ironically anxious over whether they have enough bread. This is in the same gospel where just recently Jesus has multiplied the loaves for the second time in the same gospel. And here they make themselves across the river. As soon as they're on the other side of the river here at Mark 8, they're, they're in the boat and they're thinking, oh no, we only have one loaf. Now what? And the reader can't help but think, just exactly what do you require to have some confidence that one loaf might just be enough with this Lord you serve? As a reader, we're invited into that, that kind of uh, irrational anxiety. But then Jesus' response to it exposes the irrationality of our own. How will we make it. How will I get through? Can sometimes be the irrational response to trouble that forgets the myriad of ways the Lord has been faithful. Of course, the lesson here to remember what God has done for you and continue to benefit from what he has given you in the past is something Implicit as well in the fifth commandment of all things. Arguably it's attached to other commandments too, but think of the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother, which 
the Westminster Catechisms appropriately uh, unpack as having in view not only, but of course principally, your father and mother individually, but also by implication all those who have gone before you and function for you as a source of wisdom for your present. What are they, in fact? They are people God has blessed you with, though they are in your rearview mirror, in one way or another. This is the confessionally reformed way of appreciating the appropriate place positively of the Christian tradition. Not as a rival to scripture in any respect, but at the same time, certainly not merely a relic. These are voices of wisdom in the past we are expected to continue to benefit from. And when we fail to do so, it is because we have forgotten that this is how God blesses his people ordinarily. So when we are in a circumstance, in a situation in which we are vulnerable to anxiety and the restlessness that comes with it, Jesus' words to these disciples who are anxious themselves again about having enough food are words which call us to look backward as well as look upward when we now need to be blessed. Friends, it is not a bad idea at all then to make it a practice to recount to one another what great things the Lord has done. You'll remember it, having said it. And the other person might be reminded as well, no, the Lord really does care for his own. Well, if that's only one side, what might the other side be to Jesus' response to his disciples? Well, in fact, I think this is This other side is the foundation for what we just noticed as a happy consequence of Jesus' words. That happy consequence being when God blesses, he blesses for the moment and then for the moments that follow. And we continue, we should expect to continue to benefit from what he has done for us in the past. The foundation of that is something even richer that is very much in view in Jesus' Uh, correction and his admonition of these disciples. The other side is this, and that is that Jesus is himself the broken bread, the broken bread gift, if you will, who keeps on giving. And that he keeps on giving first as he is the gift of God in a movement toward Israel under the terms of the Old Covenant. And then as he is a movement of God's generosity toward the Gentiles, who though second after the Jews, are not second class citizens, but folded into the very blessings promised to the sons of Abraham. These Gentiles who enjoy the second movement in view here is the church is a movement of God's generosity in Jesus that in fact continues in waves of generosity generation after generation after generation. To appreciate this, let's notice the very thing Jesus wants to make sure his disciples have not over looked. Now you remember, disciples, what happened when I fed the 5,000, right? The 5,000 from five loaves. How many baskets were left over, Jesus asked. Twelve, says the 
ever-eager disciple student. You have to imagine it's Peter with a hand up only because Peter likes to do this kind of thing. Perhaps Peter volunteers the answer. Someone volunteers the correct answer. Twelve. Twelve baskets left over. Correct, disciple. Now, do you remember when I fed the 4,000? How many loaves? Seven loaves. How many baskets were left over this time, class? Seven. Seven baskets Seven baskets left over. Twelve the first time, seven the next time. And Jesus leans in and says, so? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus does miraculously feed the multitudes on these two occasions. In the first time, in chapter 6, there are 12 baskets of leftovers, a number which, of course, represents the 12 tribes of Israel, a number of great importance in the scriptures as a whole, the 12 tribes of Israel. Two chapters later, in our chapter 8, the number of baskets left over is seven, itself a very significant number in the world of scripture, and for these Jews at this time, particularly seven, as a number for some sense of universality, completeness, expansiveness, and again, uh, a cohesiveness to this universality. All are accounted for. Now, interestingly, even the very words used for the baskets themselves are different words in these two miracles within Mark's gospel. In the first, in Mark 6, the word for the basket uses the word for a standard Jewish lunch basket, lunch pail. In Mark 8, in the case of the four and the seven, 4,007 baskets, it's a different word used for basket, one that was used by Gentiles for doing their shopping. A basket associated with Gentile activities. The first case, baskets used by Jews for enjoying their mid midday meal. In the latter, in the second, the basket that Gentiles were connected to when it came to doing their regular shopping. In other words, what is being suggested here is that the, the crowd in view for Miracle 1 was probably largely Jewish. Now, in its location, uh, it makes sense that this would be the case, and that it was perhaps at least mixed, if not largely Gentile, in the second of these miracles. Now, what, what are we supposed to glean, pun intended, from this passage about these numbers when we take Mark into view as a whole. Well, our key, our great help here is a little before our passage in chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, in between our two miracles, is this famous passage of the Gentile Syrophoenician woman who responds properly to Jesus accurately with her own right answer to his loaded question. When she says to him, you remember the story, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs of the children. And you remember from Mark 7, Jesus loves her answer. He's a bit frustrated with his disciples in chapter 8. He loves this Gentile woman's answer. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs of the children. The apostles don't understand. She does understand. This whole business about bread and baskets 
with baskets being the leftovers. This is referring, in Jesus' ministry, to the nation of Israel and its bread, and then the bread that comes to the Gentiles in their midst as a result of God's movement toward his people in generosity. In the first case, the first number, this is something that God or Christ takes, and the result becomes yielded from the number. We can think of this backwards. The number 12, almost always referring to the 12 tribes of Israel, not coincidentally becoming the basis for the 12 disciples, who would be 12 apostles, as the apostolic foundation of the church. This is a number associated with the concept, the people of God. The number seven, on the other case, as we suggested, as we noted, refers to things of completion. The Sabbath is on the seventh day, the culminating day that marks it off as a completed week. The seven is also the time or day of holiness and of completion. It becomes the number of the universe since the seventh day brought completion and peace to the entirety of the creative act of God. The Jews were used to using 70, 70 times, uh, 7 times 10, 70 to describe the universal fullness of the Gentiles in particular. Well, that Syrophoenician woman, a little before our verses, understands the movement in its two stages. There is bread God gives to his people. There are crumbs that fall from that table in a second movement that belongs to the Gentiles. And so when he says, what are you thinking you can have the bread that is given for my people? She says, appropriately. Yeah, but even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs of the children. And he says, aha, you get it. You get it. The number seven for the Jews long represented the seven Gentile nations that occupied the promised land during the time of Moses. See Deuteronomy chapter 7 for the list of the seven Gentile nations that occupied the promised land and until they were expelled benefited from as it were the crumbs that fell off of Israel's divinely blessed table. The promised land itself was, of course, occupied by the 12 tribes of Israel, and then, by extension, those competing seven nations of the Gentiles. After Jesus is raised from the dead, in anticipation of his church spreading throughout the world, now going from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, Acts chapter 1, we know that Jesus appears to seven disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee among his final appearances as risen. In other words, Jesus in Mark 8 is getting in front of his disciples and you and me the ways of God in history which undergird why you and I can be confident he will provide for you. The ways of God in history, in the first movement of the Old Covenant, Christ feeds, the Son feeds the people, yielding the twelve baskets of leftovers. God establishes the people of Israel in the Old Testament 
connected to each of the patriarchs and builds them up as his people in space, time, and history with manna from heaven, with the tabernacle and temple presence among his people, the rituals, the offerings, the sacrifices of fellowship and communion, building them up from infancy into adolescence. And in the new covenant, here comes Christ. Now notice in Mark 8, literally after three days, he comes and now feeds people to yield seven baskets. As though giving an anticipation of the nature of Jesus' ministry to the world on the other side of his empty tomb, after his resurrection on the third day, he here gives a figure of what is coming, and after three days, feeds people again, yielding seven baskets to represent the Gentile world and to tell his disciples and all, now the second movement, enfolding the first, but moving beyond it, the second movement of God's generosity toward his people is beginning the establishment of the church, the fullness of the Gentiles will be coming in into the very covenant of God he made with Abraham our father in the faith. This is how it works out. And so Christ is prompting his disciples, do you understand? Do you see? Do you hear why it was 12 and then why it was 7? In other words, the passage of the miracle of the loaves and fishes, this is not primarily evidence that Jesus is fully God. Is it that? To be sure. It belongs on the long list of biblical evidences for that truth. But that's not centrally the point. Any more than the point is that people were fed and wondered at the marvel of it. And that there were leftovers. Jesus makes the point the number of the baskets that follow the act. Twelve and then seven. Do you see, he asks, do you hear, do you not remember, do you understand the Gentiles are going to be brought into the basket after three days, Mark 8, verse 2. When we, when we hear it, when we see it, when we get it, all kinds of other things start popping out into the picture for us that we might have otherwise missed. Who was the great apostle to the Gentiles? It was the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul who was later placed in a basket to save his life because he was designated the apostle to the Gentiles. Again, this second side of the two-sided message of Mark 8 is the foundation for the first. Friends, that we are here at all this evening is because God remains the relentlessly generous giver of good gifts, whose gifts cascade with more and more generosity beyond the gift given. And in Jesus Christ, he has given us the true bread from heaven, who is in truth the gift that keeps on giving. We are here because we are enjoying the crumbs, the life-giving heavenly crumbs that have trickled off a table in which 
God has acted as the supreme giver of gifts in giving nothing less than himself to be our life. And in that movement, which was first to the Jews and then also to the Greeks or to the Gentiles, first through Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth, you and I have been swept up into the movement of God's astounding generosity and have benefited from the breaking of bread that happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. That fracture still feeds today. And it will feed your children's children and then their children in the generations to come as by faith they cling to this true bread. And because of that foundational truth, you individually, you personally, you as husbands and wives, you as families gathered around your dinner tables and your Bibles in prayer and song, you can and should look back at times God has blessed you and metabolize it in faith and hope and love and let it be the blessing it is designed to be for you today that God blessed you as he did yesterday. That the way God blesses you today might serve as a cause of encouragement for you and others tomorrow. This is the wisdom and mystery of God's ways. We want miracles all the time when it is infinitely wiser and more loving for God to act and then to call you back over and over again to his act so that you will draw the infinite strength from it that is there for you. There's an expression sometimes used in our circles regarding the, the daily bread, which Pastor Eric referred to this morning as we were saying the Lord's Prayer together, an expression that when we ask the Lord for daily bread, we are, in short, asking him to give us tomorrow's bread today. And there's some truth in that. There's some truth in the fact that the daily bread we enjoy as the church is pulled from our future, pulled from the final bread that is ours, as it were. But there is also truth in thinking of it this way. Your daily bread today is the effect of bread given. It is the consequence of bread already gifted, bread already enjoyed, that is having its way in you and enlarging your heart in gratitude and in confidence in his mercies. Christianity 101 in certain respects. That God has done what he has done in history according to his wise design and purpose in bringing his good news, his living bread to the nations. And that is why you can trust him. Let us all be remembers of these things. Let us pray. We do ask our Heavenly Father that we would have the eyes to see and ears to hear that you summon from us. We pray that you would give the very thing you ask of us in these spiritually awakened and ready selves that you have called us to be. We pray that you would keep before us the many, many ways in which you have proved your faithfulness to us. Most of all, in the gift of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose gift continues to give. And we ask this as we ask all things in Jesus' name. Amen.